Hello, folks, and welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is uh, Ed Fallon, your host, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. A uh, quick shout-out to a couple of our local business partners, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. And a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And yeah, they're doing takeout. So you can still have all your favorite meals there at Gateway Market and Cafe. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. Again, no live concerts, but they're doing a fantastic live stream performances every Wednesday and Saturday. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, again, welcome to today's program. Later in the show, we're going to be talking about surveillance in the age of COVID with a reporter from the Netherlands with the uh, the correspondent. We'll also be talking about the, um, we're gonna be talking about industrial chicken versus backyard flocks. But first I wanna welcome, I wanna welcome uh, Ben Hawks to the uh, program. Ben, hello, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great today. Just been doing a little fishing this morning. Oh, fishing. No, I, I read a bit about your background. You grew up in Johnston and- uh, Yeah. And I know you've got, you, I love this quote. I, you said, quote, I've been an educator since the age of 12 when I started offering talks on my collection of snakes to daycares and after-school programs. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I think just from a young age, once I was so passionate about something, I just really wanted to share it with people. And uh, since then, that's kind of driven a lot of the stuff that I do. Yeah, and you had, your, in between your undergraduate and your graduate degree in biology, you, you canoed the length of the Mississippi River. Yeah, that was uh, that was one heck of a trip. Um, you know, just a little slice of America, and kind of proven to myself that uh, I can, if I want to accomplish something, I'm I'm capable of doing it. Yeah, and you, and right now, your focus is to try to teach people how to uh, live in greater balance with the natural world. And you, you know, you're not just somebody sitting in a in a classroom or a lab. You're out there often barefoot in the woods, um, <laughs> uh, catching swarms of bees with little, little, little protective clothing. You're, you're really in the middle of, of the wild. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, the background I have in school, it, it, uh, in the scientific realm, it really prepared me for, you know, both sides of this. You know, I feel like to be an effective educator, it's, it's good to be able to know both sides of the story, like to wear a lot of different hats be able to relate to as many people as possible you know i feel like if i spent all my time doing research i wouldn't exactly know what's happening on the ground and if i spent all my time on the ground i wouldn't be able to keep up with the science right. so um trying to blend those things for me is the way that i can kind of initiate my most effective means of change uh you know that i want to see happen yeah. now that's a good a good description and a, and a nice balance i, I, th I think uh we're going, to, we're going to focus today. There's so much we could talk about, Ben. We could we could go on for an hour or more. But I want to focus on uh, the conversation about bees. Uh, you and I met uh, because uh, Kathy and I were suddenly dealing with an, an unmanageable swarm. Uh, we put out a notice, and suddenly you showed up out of the blue. It was just a, it was a fortuitous, and you helped us um, manage to you know to capture that swarm and. And uh, and uh, you know, housed it appropriately. So, uh, yeah, we're we're grateful for that. And um, and also, again, I, I think this that, that kind of helped generate the beginning of a conversation about the various types of beekeeping. I mean, there are there are there are there are, there are bees, and I mean, more and more people have two, three, four, five, a half dozen hives. Uh, and then you've got the 
big, huge industrial operators. You've also got bees that are, I mean, called feral bees, that are wild bees that are doing their thing in their own way, in their own space. And um, it seems like there's a growing conflict between the industrial scale bee operation and, and the wild bees and those who are doing it on a smaller, more sustainable scale. And you've got a perspective on that that I think I'd like to hear about. Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty new to the game um, when it comes to beekeeping. This is just my third season with it. Um, but with me, I've brought the baggage of being uh, a biologist, studying plants, native wildlife, uh, native insects. And the results um, that I've seen uh, when the industrialization of agriculture and the way we treat our landscape kind of has an effect on these things. So because of that, you know, I've approached beekeeping in a, in a different way than uh, folks who follow an industrial model. Um, I guess kind of the, the catchphrase for it, um, if you're going to be doing some Googling on the topic, is treatment-free beekeeping or natural beekeeping. Treatment-free beekeeping, okay. Treatment-free, yeah. So it's essentially, um, bees have become part of this industrial system to where they are, the most of them that are kept in hives today are completely reliant on the use of pesticides, whether they be organic or non-organic, to manage the pests that they acquire. Now, the pest, they have these pests because, well, every organism has parasites. That's just the way it goes. Um, but it's also because of some of the ways that we keep them. We keep them in really large apiaries, very close together. Um, we do things like the almond pollination, where bees from all over the United States are shipped out to one central location. There's way too many of them in one spot. Their so, diet is poor. So what, why, why is fungicides, okay, all these things? Okay, so let's say 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 bees in a northern clime, Michigan, Minnesota, Iowa, where you know they they, they got to deal with a hard winter. What's, um, what's objectionable about transporting them to California for the winter to help pollinate the almond crop? I mean, a lot of human beings are leaving the, north, the upper Midwest during the winter as well. Why is that a problem for bees to head down south for a couple months? Well, it's only a problem, I guess, for me if it, if it doesn't align with the, your philosophy on how you keep. Um, now, there are people who are, who are trying to do this migratory beekeeping in a way that's more in line with natural beekeeping, but... When I look at it, I, I want to keep uh, bees and I want to interact with my environment in a way that's as local as possible and that doesn't rely on as many exterior inputs as possible. So for me, I think of a, a, a colony of bees as living in a tree in a hollow um, in the middle of a forest or on the edge of a prairie, and they're not moving to California every year. They're not having to deal with large colonies of bees in their proximity. You know, in the wild, colonies are spread out about every half mile. The research is showing that they're very well spaced on the landscape. So resources are uh, plentiful. They're not worrying about picking up pests from other bees. And uh, on top of it, the, the, the hive thickness on those uh, walls is really, really thick to be able to deal with those harsh winters that we've got. So we're essentially taking bees kind of out of this, this, uh, way that they've evolved to live and trying to more match them to the ideals of honey production, uh, maximum wax production. And when you do things like that, um, a lot of folks know from experience is that some things kind of tend to tend to fall to the wayside. And one of them can be the health of the honey. So is it the, the, the need for treatment uh, of mites and other problems in bees, I mean, that's 
that's something that small operators have to deal with as well as well as the industrial operators. And your 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 philosophy is that you would rather not use those treatments at all. But but isn't it to some extent necessary because of um, impacts on honeybees from climate change, from pesticides, uh, pesticides applied in the urban area, lawn chemicals, for example, and certainly some of the toxic pesticides that are applied on crops. Aren't some of the bees, um, the problems bees are having now, responses to those? And does that justify an intervention like a treatment for the varroa mite, for example? And I think, once again, that comes down to kind of a lot of your philosophy on life. Um, for me, I'm not completely sold on the idea that um, technology is going to save us. Um, I think a lot of it is very useful, and I take advantage of quite a bit of it. But I don't see the problem for pesticides in our landscape and a changing climate to be trying to make things that require more complexity. Um, for me, the, it's, I think, what is it, Occam's razor, the most, the most simple solution is uh, probably the right one. For me, that involves letting bees figure out themselves through natural selection which ones are capable of dealing with climate change, which ones are capable of dealing with pests on their own, and letting them sort that out. You know, it's, it's treatment-free, but it's not stupid. You know, it's not walking away from these hives and just letting them do their thing and passing disease to other ones. There's still some active management involved, don't get me wrong, because we're dealing with, uh, we're not dealing with bees that live in tree hollows. I mean, that's a whole other topic we could talk about. Too. Right, you know, yeah. We trees, tree bees, yeah. and that's a cool one. Um, yeah. But, but, there, but, think, but uh, there's no honey harvest when it comes to tree bees, right? You're not, you're not, you're not harvesting anything, you're just... Or, no, there is. You are. How do you how do you harvest honey, honey? Yeah. unless unless you're Winnie the Pooh? How do you harvest honey from a, a hive that's located forty feet up in the air, say, in a huge tree? So, so if I remember right, the practice is really uh, well pra it's well practiced in Poland, and there are still people who teach courses on this. And you essentially climb up into a tree with you know tools of the trade. And you use hand tools to actively hollow out a cavity into a live tree. And you make it a certain size, you make the entrance in a certain specific way, and you encourage the bees to show up. Once they do, there is a tried and true practice about how much honey you harvest, where you harvest it in the, in the hive. And I mean, really when it comes down to it, this is what beekeeping was for centuries for thousands of years before uh, Egypt which is the first account of keeping bees in, in clay pots you know the species that we're familiar with yeah. people would locate bee trees they would carve their initials in the side of them and then that would be the hive they could go back and harvest later that is fascinating whether, yeah whether that would be cutting a tree down there's one way to do it but uh, I think people come to decide that well it's better to come back next year so maybe we can just carve a little access hole yeah Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and so um, again, wild bee is is the kind of, kind, of, kind of the far edge of the whole conversation, and uh, among those who are practicing beekeeping on a small scale in their backyard or a few hives, dozen hives, whatever, on their farm, uh, there's still a a big, a huge, uh, you know, world of difference between that and the industrial operators that are ha hauling what a million hives a year, I think, is what I read. To yeah, to um, not just the California for the almond hard, almond uh, crop, but to other places in the South for various um, pollination, and uh, and, and there, you know, I, I don't. 
that seems much the question of sustainability when it comes to that sort of operation is, is yeah, it's, it's pretty much not going to, that's not going to last. I, I, I would tend to agree. Um, you know, I think a lot of solutions to our problems are localization of, of, uh, of, of the resources that we need to survive as a society. And I think, um, not using fossil fuels to move bees halfway across the country is, is one way that we get away from a lot of the issues that we have. Um, you know, and if, if you're going to be someone who keeps bees in this way, if you're a hobbyist, you know, you do have to think about it a little differently. The idea of maintaining one or two hives while trying to weed out the genetics that you don't want um, is going to be difficult. You know, you're going to have to keep at least five hives, um, in my opinion, to try to keep a treatment-free operation going in the first few years. Yeah. Um, hmm. I mean, bees don't really maintain themselves as a single hive either. You know, they're constantly reproducing and dealing with stresses that they encounter. And um, it's just a different way to think about it. Um, when I think when, when people do, they, uh, they may take to it. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting stuff, Ben. Uh, I, I want to ask you, have you heard of the honey war? Uh, no. I okay, haven't. so this is fascinating. I, I, I'm doing this from memory, and my memory uh, is correct. Back in the 1800s, there was a war between Missouri and Iowa. It was a small-scale skirmish involving question over who owned, where, where the actual divide in the state occurred. And when troops from Missouri came to, a, to, take, to get a payment of taxes from Iowans, they, they, they were refused. And so on the way home, they raided some honey um, beehives and took payment in lieu of taxes with honey, <laughs> which I think is an amazing story anyway. <laughs> so, hey, Ben, yeah, I... You know, yeah, I, I'd love to see a world where beehives can exist in trees again in the landscape. That would be neat. And again, you're doing amazing work, Ben. If folks want to get in touch with you and learn more about your services and your activities, where do they go? Uh, I've got a website. It's called ephemeralmidwest.com. That's E-P-H-E-M-E-R-A-L midwest.com. And yeah, feel free to reach out with any questions or uh, yeah, comments. Great. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Folks, we've been talking with Ben Hawks. And when we come back, uh, we'll continue our conversation. We're going to be talking about surveillance in the age of corona here on the Fallon Forum. Back in a minute. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, 
and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. I want to give a quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners in the Des Moines metro. Thanks to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers, and they continue to do takeout service even during the coronavirus crisis. That's Hawk Restaurant. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Again, welcome back to the program. Uh, I'd like to, like to join, have you join me in welcoming our next guest, uh, Dmitry Tukmetsits. He is a journalist with The Correspondent. That's a global online publication with correspondents uh, based in the U.S., Nigeria, India, Britain, Italy, the Netherlands, Argentina, all over the world. And it's, a, again, a new publication that I've, um, I've really enjoyed uh, reading uh, it's uh, I guess they describe it as what non-breaking news. Is that right, Dimitri? Yeah, that's good. that's correct. Yeah, the, the, the official slogan is unbreaking. News. Unbreaking. So, there we go. Yeah, I, I, I like unbreaking that. Unbreaking news. My yeah. credit union describes itself as the unbanking alternative. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. anyway, you know, across the globe, uh, surveillance technology has is being it's regarded as part of the solution to the coronavirus crisis. But there are a growing number of concerns about how governments either are or might uh, take that technology too far. And, um, you know, they might even maintain that surveillance uh, strategy uh, beyond the coronavirus. And I'll give you an example from our own experience here in the U.S., uh, the Patriot Act. Uh, that was enacted, of course, in, you know, after 9-11. And it was, it was um, specifically enacted for a limited time frame to help track terrorists and try to prevent another attack. But lawmakers have consistently renewed the act. It's been a bipartisan problem as well. And uh, a lot of people are saying that we might, you know, be similarly, we should be similarly concerned about an anti, anti-COVID-19 strategies that what are being enacted now to battle the pandemic, you know, could be, you know, kept around for a lot longer un- under the guise of additional security, but not really needed. And could morph into additional into new strategy, new um, new uses uses that we really don't see as part of a friendly democracy. So let's um, let's start by taking a look at um, contact tracing, and that's arguably an important tool to help you know fight the spread of uh, COVID nineteen, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, uh, many countries are right now uh, developing one of these apps or just started using them. Uh, what we did is uh, basically look all over the world and try to find out which countries. And in the end, we are, have it tallied up around 90 at this moment. So we found 90 uh, different systems and apps that they are using, and basically in different categories. So you have these contact tracing apps that, that use your iPhone or your, uh, your cellular phone. They use Bluetooth. 
So a Bluetooth signal uh, is emitted by your phone and is, is being picked up by a phone close by and that contact is being logged. So uh, when somebody is infected with COVID-19, then they can uh, find all the people you have been into close contact with. So um, we, we, another technology. Would you, would you say yeah. that the, the contact tracing has been effective in those countries that have used it? Well, that's the funny thing. Uh, no, no, not at all. In many countries, uh, the debate has shifted uh, massively. Uh, in the Netherlands, for instance, but also in the UK and in other countries, uh, the, the contact tracing apps were seen as a precondition to ease the lockdowns. So they said, we don't want a lockdown without uh, the use of this, these apps. But uh, the development of these apps were really hard. Uh, technically, but also when the app was actually developed, not enough people uh, use these apps. So Australia has that has a problem, and Singapore, for instance, about 20% of the people actually download the app, uh, which is not enough. We need okay. about 50 or 60% of people using it, and otherwise it's not effective. So in many countries, you see that the debate has shifted, and they say, well, uh, it's nice that we have an app, but we are going to stick to manual contact tracing. So people actually making calls and uh, talking to infected people for who have you been into contact with. Okay. So uh, that, that, and not that, using okay. these apps anymore. So the old-fashioned means of just talking to people about, hey, who have you been, who have you seen in the last week or two? Yes. That works. Yes. Uh, that seems to be working better. Way. But what about this concern that? that contact tracing could be used beyond the coronavirus crisis as a way to monitor behavior and movement. Is that, is that, a, is that still a concern? Yeah, of course, because these apps are uh, used and other systems are used right now, uh, like you have the Bluetooth, but you also have QR codes. So basically you have to scan your phone when you enter a certain premises, a certain venue, so like a restaurant or an office or a government building, you have to scan your phone and then it's being logged. And in many countries, you see that uh, these apps become mandatory also oh. in offices. So if you uh, enter a certain workspace in your, uh, in your office building, then you have to scan your phones and your employer wants that. So they know who has been into contact with whom. Interesting. And, and those things are often mandatory. So you don't have a choice. If you want to go out, you have to use this app. And if you want to enter a building, you have to log in. And the problem, like you said, is with, with these kinds of things, they don't tend to disappear. Mm, Just like right. terrorism wasn't a problem that, uh, that was solved uh, in a couple of years. It didn't have an end date. Uh, uh, and the same is with this, uh, Ill, uh, with this virus, of course. We don't have an end date to the corona crisis. Right. Well, you know, maybe and, and, we have a vaccine in a year, but it could take years. And back to the Patriot Act again, there was deep concern yeah. about terrorism after the attacks on 9-11. And, uh, and that mm -hmm. was seen as a way to help prevent further attacks. But as it continued to be renewed and modified, uh, it became clear that it was being used to, serve, you know, to provide surveillance on innocent Americans. And that is a big mm -hmm. part of why Edward Snowden got into so much trouble uh, in some circles and became such yeah. a hero <laughs> to some who valued liberty. And we're concerned about that. I, I want to, you know, in, in your recent story, in the uh, correspondent, you wrote something I want to ask you about. You wrote, and I quote, uh, before coronavirus, anonymized location data from mobile networks was already used by municipal governments to track pedestrians' movements around a city and by bounty yeah. hunters. Now, and yeah. I, I did not know that. Is, it, is that, that for real? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. This kind of data, this kind of data is being used a lot, actually, uh, because uh, um, phone providers like Verizon, for instance, or AT and T, they actually sell this kinds of services and this kind of data to uh, commercial parties. Then they can use this for mostly for advertising purposes. But there are stories uh, known where uh, municipal governments use these kinds of uh, location data to see. Uh, walking patterns in the city where it's uh, really crowded, for instance, where uh, extra police is necessary. Or in this case, well, there was this case that bounty hunters actually bought this kind of data, personalized location wow. data, because, well, everybody has a phone right now and uh, everybody's location is known. With these uh, companies like Verizon and AT&T, they always know where you are. Uh, and so some of them, uh, in some cases, that now, information is being monetized. Do you, do you happen to know, uh, for example, well, what percentage of the population of the Netherlands or, or the United States, for that matter, do you, do you happen to know what percentage of the population own a smartphone? Uh, I don't know it for the U.S., but I would figure something like 90%, I think. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of the same in most developed countries. Mm. So in the Netherlands, it's also about 90%. It's usually the elderly that don't own a smartphone. But right. just a normal phone. But even with a normal phone, uh, you can track people because uh, when you um, the, the the phone company needs to know where you are in order to route right. a signal to your phone. But when you say when so you say they when, can when, triangulate, when you say a normal phone, so when you say a normal phone, you mean any cell phone, or do you mean even rotary phones, landlines? So. Oh no 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 okay. landlines. <laughs> yeah, well, they know the address of the landline, but. Uh, uh, then, then it's clear where your location is. But uh, yeah. the dumb phones, the dumb cellular okay. phones, not the smartphones. And, and what, are, what about mass location tracking? Mm -hmm. is, is yeah, I don't think that, that is that problematic. It's being used to see how people actually uh, travel and how they move about. And that is being done a lot, uh, anonymized usually. So they make these heat maps that you see that that at certain points on the map it's it's really crowded with people and at other points it's really not so dense. Yeah. And they try to track the effects, for instance, of easing the lockdowns. What is happening in the U.S., of course, right now, and also happening all over the world. And they want to see how people actually move about, so they can understand. Well, maybe we have to make the lockdown a little bit more strict. And the, the privacy implications are not that big. Usually. Now, probably the most um, frightening thing from your story that I read was about surveillance drones. Uh, you, you say, and yeah. I quote again, to critics, uh, they are proof of a creeping militarization of civil life as technology designed mm -hmm. for war zones becomes integrated into the everyday life. Uh, so, again, that, that's a huge concern. I, 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 I didn't even know that drone technology was at all helpful in battling COVID-19. Uh, I guess my first question is, is it? And beyond that, what should we be concerned about going forward? Yeah, they're used for multiple purposes. So one of them is uh, uh, checking, uh, uh, seeing if the quarantine is being enforced for quarantine enforcement. So they, they look uh, if people are outside when they shouldn't be outside. So that is one way to use them. Another is that uh, some of them are outfitted with uh, certain cameras or sensors, uh, like facial recognition, for instance, or um, that they can uh, see the, your body temperature. So if there are people in a crowd of people that uh, have symptoms of the flu, for instance, so you can use them for that. 
the nice thing about drones uh, from from a, a police point of course is that they uh, you can get everywhere and they can uh, stay airborne for quite some time mm-hmm. so uh, it's an interesting for from police perspective an interesting tool to use and <laughs> there has been a lot of um, um, they they have been used a lot especially in, in border regions by oh. border patrol for instance uh, for immigration let, purposes, etc. Let, let me. I want to bring this home to the U.S. here. For that's for most of our audiences, of course. Um, you know, we've been looking yeah. at the global picture, but the situation in the U.S. Uh, you know, we the U.S. might have the strongest resistance campaign to even the most basic coronavirus fighting restrictions. And again, I think it's a minority. Most of us agree that that we need to work mm-hmm. together to try to minimize the spread of the disease. But you've got some pretty vocal yeah. opponents, and I think even even those of us who are uh, on board with uh, with uh, staying at home and other restrictions, uh, we would be concerned if these uh, types of po- practices were kept in place after the coronavirus threat had passed. I mean, do you, mm-hmm. do you really think we should be uh, concerned in the long haul that, that that could be the case that our own government here in the U.S. might continue to use some of these strategies to provide you know yeah, sur- I, yeah. surveillance of us? I agree, but uh, I'm not sure if the government is the problem per se in this in this case. Uh, I think one of the more lasting uh, things could be uh, what companies do, especially employers. Um, I can imagine that a lot of employers want to know a lot of medical data on their employees in the, in the coming uh, months and maybe years. So you have to give a, probably a lot of your medical information to your employer. And the question is, what can they do with that kind of information? And you can expect to be checked a lot more. And uh, uh, going against the government is, I think, easier than going against your employer. Because, well, if you make a lot of noise, you probably get fired. Well, and yeah. people uh, really need their jobs right now. Right. Interesting. Um, interesting. Well, I really appreciate your diligence. Uh, I know that uh, you and... Others at the correspondent are doing a long-term, uh, you know, reporting on surveillance strategies that again are targeted to the coronavirus, but have deeper political and economic implications. And I'm, I'm grateful for that effort. Um, thank you uh, very much. And again, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure, folks. We've been talking with uh, Dimitri Tokmetsis. He's a Dutch journalist, a correspondent with The Correspondent, a global online publication uh, that uh, just kicked off last fall and is um, already doing um, a really good job, I think, at reporting on stuff that a lot of publications are missing. Again, thanks so much for joining us, Dimitri. Yeah, thank you. All right, folks, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk, we're going to look at some of the top climate stories of the past week. And yeah, I know that it's all been about COVID-19, but there's been a lot happening on the climate front that we need to catch up with. Later in the program, uh, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm joining us as we talk about big poultry versus backyard chicken. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, 
Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to a couple of the nonprofits that helped make this program possible. Thank you to Bold Iowa, fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. That's boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn to turn your yard into dinner. Check out birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Again, welcome back to the program. Later in the show, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to talk about... We're going to talk about industrial poultry facilities and how they're starting to take a crack at little backyard chicken people. Interesting. We'll talk about that. You would think that backyard chicken uh, people would just be so off the radar that, that these massive poultry confinements wouldn't give a hoot. Apparently they do. They feel threatened. Who knew? We'll talk about that later. Right now, in our climate update section of this program, I want to talk about the... Um, the dam break in Michigan, or it looks like more than one dam, really. But the big news is this uh, dam just north of Detroit. Uh, well, again, two dams north of Detroit. Uh, you know, they broke. And uh, these are big dams. Well, one of them, for some reason I can't find the detail on two of them. One of them was 6,600 feet long. And that had a, a height of about 55 feet. Now, to contrast that with the Sailorville Dam, just north of Des Moines, the Sailorville Dam is 6,750 feet long, so it's comparable. It's, a, it's almost the same length as the dam that broke northwest of Detroit, but the Sailorville Dam is about 105 feet high, so it's three times the height, just as long, three times the height, and I believe a heck of a lot more water, potentially, behind that dam. So... What happened, of course, in, in uh, Michigan was when uh, eight inches of rain fell in the watersheds above the uh, above the dam. Uh, you know, it broke, and the the deluge uh, was huge. It, it it involved the evacuation of eleven thousand people. It flooded the city of Midland, Michigan, and uh, it also flooded the um, <laughs> the massive complex that is known as Dow Chemical Company. So, you know, that, there's all sorts of concerns here. First of all, you know, these dams were built at a time when the kind of rainfall we're getting in the new climate era was not heard of. And so now that we're seeing these incredible rain, I mean, eight inches, that's a lot. And to put that in perspective, again, folks in the central Iowa area might remember on June 30th, two years ago, we had a 10-inch rainfall. Now, it didn't fall in the watershed north of the dam, and who knows, maybe the conditions are, you never know what's gonna happen, of course. But the bottom line is, more water, uh, you know, more rain overall, falling in, 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 uh, in, in uh, larger increments, uh, falling uh, really, really rapidly in short periods of time, can mean a problem for these old dams. And some of these dams go way back. 
The Sailorville Dam, I want to say, goes back to the 60s, late 70s, somewhere in there, or early 70s, rather. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, it's a, it's a disaster that's already happened. Again, in 1993 in Des Moines, major flood. Uh, again, and that, that was called at the time a 500-year flood. And, you know, of course, we'd only been, we meaning the settler-descendant folks who colonized Iowa, have only been here for, what, a little over 150 years at that point. So a little bit of arrogance to uh, suggest that we can identify what a 500-year flood looks like. But at any rate, we'll give you that. And we had one in 1993. And then 15 years later, 2008, we have our second 500-year flood. Maybe it's time to redo the math on that sort of thing. So anyway, you know, and then 2010, we didn't have the flood, but God, we came close. That was only two years after the 2008 flood. And again, 2008 flood was bad news for Des Moines. It was even worse news for Iowa's second largest city, for Cedar Rapids, which is still, 12 years later, still recovering from a flood that damaged or destroyed one out of every five structures in the city of Cedar Rapids. So, you know, even... even even if the dams were stable and weren't threatened with collapse, we'd still have the problem of, uh, <laughs> of all these rains causing the water level to get to the point where they have to let more water through the spillway or whether they, they overflow the dam. You know, and again, this is not just an isolated incident. Um, I mean, other examples of failures in recent times, the uh, Oroville Emergency Spillway in California, that was in 2017. Um, well... <laughs> Also in 2017, here in Iowa and Nebraska and up and down the Missouri River, all the levees that broke. And last year, 2019, levees that are still not repaired along the Missouri River. Uh, dams in South Carolina in 2015 and 2016. And in New Orleans, levees in 2005 and again in 2015. You know, dam designs are based on weather patterns from a past era and they don't they don't consider what's going on right now with the with the changing climate and so what happened in michigan recently is of great concern and not that we need another wake-up call but it ought to be a wake-up call and again another part of that wake-up call goes along with the inundation of the dow chemical complex okay so there was fear locally that this um this, these toxins from the plant could spill into the river. Um, and, you know, pollution from the Dow Chemical Plant is not a new thing. This has been going on for a long time. Uh, apparently, Dow opened that plant in 1890. I didn't, 1897. Who, who knew that the chemical company has been around causing mischief for that long? 1897, that Dow Chemical Plant was opened, again, in that watershed northwest of Detroit. And uh, for a long time, for the longest time, they dumped uh, dioxins directly into the Chittapawassee River. And uh, again, the EPA, which wasn't even established till Richard Nixon's uh, administration, <laughs> in large part, not because Republicans used to care about the environment. But, you know, okay, some of them used to care more than the most of them do now. Um, and I would say that a lot of them care more than either some members of either party care these days. But uh, again, Nixon established the EPA, and back in the 1980s, the EPA started becoming concerned when it noticed 
well, probably in, largely because local people were reporting it, there was waste running off from the Dow chemical site and highly toxic chemicals were being detected in the uh, Titabawasi River. It was also being found in the uh, sediment along the bottom of the river, along the river's banks, and eventually that area was included in the Superfund cleanup program. And so cleanup began, began along that river in, what, 2012? Again, a lot later than it should have. This stuff should have been happening a lot sooner. And, and, um, and that included, of course, you know, dredging and removing contaminated soil and, and you know, putting caps on some of the contaminated sites. Yeah, and, of course, the taxpayers picked up a lot of the tab here, of course. But Dow dropped, but for them it's probably a pittance, dropped $77 million into the environmental fund intended to restore some of the landscape that had been damaged. Um, and uh, some of this still, stuff is still being litigated, by the way. But now the fear is now, the fear is that uh, these floodwaters, again, because of the breaching of the dam, uh, some of these floodwaters uh, are now inundated with chemical contaminants. And who knows what kind of toxics are there? Who knows what kind of exposure that's going to mean to the general public? And so, this, you know, this is one of those unidentified, largely unidentified impacts of the climate crisis. Okay, so we're going to have more rain. Uh, Miami is going to be underwater. Uh, Venice, get there to see it while you can, right? But we don't think about these other impacts. When, when the rains come hard and fast, and uh, in greater quantities than, than, than normal, than in the past, these structures are unable to manage that environmental impact. And again, not only the structure, I'm, I'm not just talking about the dam, but I'm talking about these facilities like the Dow Chemical Company. They aren't expecting their holding ponds to be inundated. And they aren't expecting, well, maybe, you know, maybe they are. Maybe they're that callous. They know this is going to happen. And they'll just say, okay, it's a cost of doing business. I would not put that past them. But anyway, the, the, you know, these, these things are going to continue to happen. These impacts are going to continue to be a problem. So um, what is the long-term solution? Well, you know, I, I'd like to say that, and this is maybe a radical thought, I'm going to suggest that Sailorville Dam never should have been built. And I know it was, it was proposed as flood control. And we've seen how effective that was in 1993 and 2008, nearly in 2010. Um, but, you know, really, a lot of it has to do with um, development, um, controlling the river north of, north of uh, Des Moines so that you can assure that there'll be more opportunities for growth and development uh, downstream. Also, recreation. I mean, look at all the, uh, all the benefits that have accrued to some people, some businesses, and again, some families because of the recreational opportunities on Sailorville Lake. Again, I would say that um, for me, as a person who prefers to canoe than to sit in a powerboat, my recreational opportunity on the Des Moines River was ruined when they decided to make that dam. And, you know, I do know that there... Here's the other thing. The, the Sailorville Lake, and this is true of a lot of these huge lakes, they have a very limited lifespan. I mean, already the northern stretches of Sailorville Lake are, are sedimenting. 
You know, you can't boat north of the north of the mile long bridge. I'm told. Again, I don't. I'm in a canoe. I can do that. But uh, <laughs> if you're in a powerboat, you can't you can't be that far north because the sediment is gradually filling in. Now I have friends who are of, of like mind that don't think the dam ever should have built, who are excited about the possibility of Sailorville Marsh because of all the bird life that's going to attract. And already we've seen um, an incredible influx of pelicans stopping in uh, for their migration south in the fall. But you know, the question is, should it have been built? Okay, we can ask that question, but the fact that it has been built and that it is functioning and that we are trying to maintain a, 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 a dam designed for previous conditions in the current conditions of the new climate era, what do we do? What is our obligation? What is our responsibility? Well. I found this just just surfing around online. I found this interesting um, publication by a guy named Julian Hyde. He's a, a student. Um, I'm blanking now on which oh, McAllister, and he wrote a paper called "Flood Control and the Growth Machine in Des Moines." I uh, <laughs> I wonder how he got. I don't know whether this was a thesis, a paper. It's published online. It was interesting, um, and he says. Uh, uh, Jonathan, or Julian rather, writes that this paper will argue that flood control projects created and managed by the Army Corps of Engineers are built to benefit a coalition of local landowners and elites. This group is known as the Growth Machine, and its goal is to create profit by ensuring ongoing population and economic growth. The development of flood control projects is an extension of those activities, flood control, is a notable example of the growth machine's activities because it is an arena where the federal government intervenes to their benefit. Uh, uh, Julian goes on to write, quote, there are around 3,800 cities and towns built on floodplains in the U.S. Floodplains have some of the highest population densities in the world because the land is flat, making construction easy, and because of proximity to a river that allows for shipping. Okay, so... Um, that's a rather uh, pointed critique of the philosophy of damming our rivers. I will point out, too, by the way, that there is a small dam in downtown Des Moines that is now being taken out to improve the opportunity for recreation there and to, and to restore the river to a more natural flow. So this is fascinating stuff. I would love to spend more time talking about this, but we've got to run to a short break. Again, when we come back, uh, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us. We're going to talk about industrial poultry versus the little backyard chicken. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-table.com. 
back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to a couple of our local business partners who make this program possible. Thank you to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. It's also a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And you can still do takeout, even though they're closed. The restaurant part is closed. You can still do takeout. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. Again, takeout is still there. Give them a shout, folks. That's Ritual Cafe. All right, welcome back to the program. Again, thanks to uh, Kathy Burns for joining me for this conversation. We're going to take a look at industrial poultry versus backyard chicken. It's a battle whose lines have been drawn, and it's getting a little (laughs) bit hotter, apparently. I never realized that there was an issue with backyard poultry outside of some communities not allowing it, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But in 2018, we were at the Iowa State Fair. Well, we go every year, but we were there in 2018, and we went into the Knapp Agriculture and Education Center. I think that's what the building is called. And they have a poultry display. It was really fun because we had your grandson there, and he was having a good time looking at the baby chicks. But we realized there was quite a theme to the poultry display. (laughs) The posters that were, and there were several, uh, were about the, the production of the eggs, the distribution of the eggs, and the theme of the posters was a comparative rundown of that type of ag that they were displaying with the using all the same kind of chicken, getting all the same kind of eggs in a very industrial and sterile environment, uh, comparing it to free range and cage free and all that, and then down to backyard farming, which was depicted comparatively as pretty grotesque, frankly, and undesirable. And we were shocked. It was it was incredible. Uh, uh, industrial chickens, they, they have such a lovely home. It's clean. It's uh, it's it's uh, it's the temperature is maintained at the right level. They're all everything's just perfect. Um, backyard chickens, sloppy conditions. You never quite know what you're going to get. Uh, it's more, unsafe. More, more risk for disease, which is incredible. It takes some it takes some real guts to say that. So you know when when all the major problems relevant to disease spread by poultry have been at the industrial operations. You know, so it's it's not it it, it it's um. To me, it said they feel threatened because more and more people are understanding that it's important to know where your eggs come from. And they're feeling these, the industry is feeling threatened. So they're fighting back with lies. Surprise, well, surprise. Well, we, we weren't, you know, we weren't really when we started, you started poultry farming a long time ago and we raised kid, um, kids. We raised <laughs> chickens when I was a kid, but I didn't get involved so much. But, um, you know, I never thought, whoa, you know, it needs to be us or them until I saw that display and I thought, wait a minute, I'm not down on industrial poultry. They can do what they want. People can choose well, to get the I, I am actually, eggs. but that's another conversation. <laughs> but was it last year that so many egg recalls were, were happening and they were... A few years. Two, couple over years over the course of several years. Um, and DeCoster, actually, uh, one of the larger chicken, uh, chicken producers here in Iowa, or nationally, has, um, had to, has been threatened with jail time because of negligence, knowingly, Transmitting, I think, was salmonella. It, uh, salmonella through um, through their through their um, through their product. There's a difference between knowingly transporting eggs with salmonella, which they which they were proven to have done, and 
allowing chicken manure to touch the egg that you might eventually eat, which is completely washable and you can, you can take care of that. So um, I, I don't know, the depiction of the backyard chicken farmer was really negative and it was, <laughs> it was blatantly comparative. And I did look into, I thought there was no branding on, on the posters that didn't say who was giving the information on the chart about this type of production versus that. Um, had the so, warm and fuzzy FFA kids uh, running it. Yeah. yeah, they had teenagers running it, and that's an awesome program. They do yeah. a good job, um, and the, the kids were fantastic. Uh, so I contacted the instructor at the school where the kids were from, and he referred me to the Iowa Egg Council. And I've been looking on Surprise, their, surprise. <laughs> I, I've been looking on the Iowa Egg Council website for some information. I couldn't find those posters again. I took some photos back then, but I, I, I didn't save them, obviously. But I, um, I was um, uh, noting, too, that the Iowa Egg Council is kind of an arm. They're associated with the American Egg Board. So that's where the inform a lot of the information that the Iowa Egg Council yeah. posts is from we'll, the American we'll, Egg. We'll just cut to the chase. Big egg. Big, <laughs> big egg instead of big egg. Big egg. Um, <laughs> The, uh, the, the American Egg Board does list the types of eggs. Uh, here's, here's the common production systems, and they list conventional eggs, meaning them, um, free-range eggs, and they describe that as eggs produced by hens that have access to outdoors in accordance with warm weather, weather et cetera, environment. Um, and, and that could be a, a sizable flock on a, on a farm with plenty of room. Yes. Yeah. And some, some means of controlling uh, decimation of the flock by weasels and foxes and hawks. Yeah. Cage-free eggs. That doesn't mean that they're free-range. That means they might be in a big indoor complex without access to be able to, um, you know, forage around. They like to peck and scratch and dig their own food. But cage-free eggs are just the same, but not kept in cages, but inside an industrial complex usually. Organic eggs, and they describe the standards for organic and then an enriched colony, but they don't have any designation for backyard chickens at all, so they're not even mentioned. Ignore us and maybe we'll go away? Uh, Is that it? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then um, the other thing I noticed on the posters was that, um, and in the, in the, um, the display was every, it was all leghorns. They were all the same kind of chicken producing the same kind of egg instead of a nice mixed flock with some pretty, we have a lot of pretty egg colors, and that doesn't mean they're more nutritious or anything, but um, there's there's no diversity, and there's, it's just very standard. But part, you know, part of the, uh, helping the, helping big egg uh, in its battle against backyard chickens are city councils and mayors who are clueless about the benefits to a community, not just to the individual owner, but to the community of allowing uh, backyard hens. I mean, Des Moines, Des Moines is very progressive on this and has been for a long time. You can, have, you can have up to 30 hens in Des Moines. But With some, some specifications. Yeah, there's some, there's some specs and some regulations, but in some of the suburbs, they aren't allowed at all. Or you may have, maybe some allow two or three and some nothing. You can't have a single bird and they're rapidly against them. Ankeny is my favorite example because Ankeny, it says they're, you know, they could be dangerous, uh, nuisance complaints, odors, smells, same thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I like to point out that, uh, that on, on average, Ankeny, the city of Ankeny has uh, 
reports of 35 to 45 dog bites per year. And yet in the same time, you know, a city much bigger than Ankeny, Des Moines, has not a single incident of a chicken attacking a child. <laughs> well, one of our chickens got a little aggressive earlier this year with me, but only with me. And I, you know, that Pe- was just a, that butt, was a right? dominance thing. I was, she thought I should be under her in the pecking order. And then we just had a conversation and she is, she is now um, back in place. But uh, the, the city of Ankeny's uh, code, and I'm reading it here, says uh, they, they note the, uh, the lack of a code to establish zoning of coops and um, they don't allow livestock and they consider, you know, like goats and, and, and beef and things. They, they, don't, they consider the chickens livestock. They forget that they're much smaller and easier contained than, yeah. than that. It says the primary reason, however, is that there are no means to, quote, police livestock should they escape confinement i'm not sure why police is in quote marks that's the grammar person in me but uh, the primary reason is that there are no means to police them should they escape confinement and um i you know i'm not chickens don't escape confinement that often when they do people are eager to get them back and they're not going to hurt someone when they're out dogs escape confinement all the time or people just don't confine them properly and I guess there's a means to police that, but it's much more dangerous for everyone involved. So I keep comparing chickens to dogs, and I love dogs. I had dogs when I lived in the country. Um, that's another thing. People are saying, if you want chickens, you should live in the country. I kind of think the same about dogs sometimes. Some people keep <laughs> their dogs in the city fine. That's fine. But to me, dogs are country things. Um, I don't know why I, I, they I draw think, the line at Yeah, chickens. I think that this distinction between urban and rural is a bit bizarre because a, a lot of the good things we value about rural living can be had in the city if you plan uh, appro- appropriately and if you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big garden, for example, or bees or, or chickens. Or even, I mean, Des Moines even allows you to have, I think, up to two pygmy goats or two pot-bellied pigs. I know someone That's who's cool. interested in the goats. Yeah, yeah. I'd love a goat. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, love to, get, I'd love to get a goat. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, the, noise, the noise part uh, is of particular interest to us also. People say, chickens make so much noise. Well, that's usually the rooster. You don't have to have a rooster to keep backyard chickens. That's one of our most common questions from people visiting birds and bees. Don't you need farms. a rooster to get eggs? <laughs> no, <laughs> your wife doesn't need you around to ovulate. Sorry, this is cut to the chase that's, on that. That's what chickens are doing. They're <laughs> ovulating. But, but um, they, they, they cite the noise. And again, dogs, even cats sometimes howling at night. We have n- neighbors who are noisy. Sorry, we, well, love our, we love most of them. Yeah, and, we, and you know, what about loud um, riding mowers or equipment? I mean, there, there are so many noises that just come with the way we live. And if, uh, if a hen clucking after she lays an egg is a problem, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's a question of that particular person's priorities than it's it is a, a question sound. of noise. Yeah, I think it's so, a but. joyful sound. Anyway, so, I, you know, I know that there are more and more citizens, uh, residents, I should say, of these smaller communities that are pushing... Uh, their cities to allow some level of uh, of uh, backyard chicken keeping, and I, I again the 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 logic of the argument is with those people. I, again, the, the defense that some within city governments are offering just don't make any sense. And again, if you, if you need an example, Des Moines. I mean, I don't know how long Des Moines since as long as I've I've been here since '84. Des Moines has always allowed backyard chickens up to 30. And that includes roosters. And again, I'm not a huge fan 
of a rooster. Maybe 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 one if you're really good at managing it and don't let it start crowing at three in the morning and waking the neighbors. But um, you know, hens are so, so innocuous and so important if you're going to if you want to encourage people to begin to attain some level of self you know, food self sufficiency. And that's what we do here at Birds and Bees Urban Farm. We want to educate people about growing their own food and um, relocalizing food sources uh, that reduces our carbon footprint all around. Chickens are such an important part of the cycle of growing food that we maintain here and that many people do. Um, all, we, we also have less burden on the garbage systems here because the scraps, we don't have food scraps go into the garbage at all. They either go to the chickens or to the compost. So uh, really the, the chicken keeping is part of a vibrant city. It's part of a healthy city. Um, it's part of a healthy gardening or farming operation, too. It really so, is. So, you know, if you live in a city that doesn't allow chickens and you want to challenge them to change that regulation, you know, give me a shout. I'd love to talk you through strategy on how that might be possible. Uh, whether you're in Iowa or somewhere else, uh, you know, that, that law should change and it could change. And there are examples all over the country where citizens um, coming together to say, hey, we want to be able to keep chickens. You know, eventually, most cities are saying, yeah, that's reasonable. Some of them are digging in their heels. But, you know, the other thing is, if you have concerns about the Iowa State Fair or if you're in a different state, your state fair and how they're promoting big egg and diminishing the value of free-range, cage-free or backyard chickens, let us know what you're seeing and let's talk about how we might be able to respond because the fair should Mm -hmm. not be allowing that kind of lopsided conversation. Yeah, we think they could do better. We do. Um, I put a call in to the, to the fair folks, but I, I did it over Memorial Day weekend, so that was a goof. I, <laughs> I hope to have a conversation with, with them about it soon, at least to find out where the posters come from, who's providing that information, and why they choose to present that image of chicken production. We'll see if we even have a state fair this year. Uh, folks, thanks for joining us again. Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm has been our guest this segment of the program. Thanks to our production crew, crew of Kathy and Sherry Herdina. We'll be back next week with more great talk radio here on the Fallon Forum.